0: Welcome, everyone, to Square One, a podcast series run by the Harvard Association for Law and Business. My name is Ramin Sheth, and I'm a current member of the advisory board for the Harvard Association for Law and Business, one of the largest student-run organizations at Harvard Law School. Today, we're incredibly excited to be joined by Jim Foy, general partner at Crosslink Capital. Jim, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me. So Jim, you know, I'm excited to talk to you today and, and dive into a bunch of topics related to startups. You know, as a as a background for the folks that are listening, you had an illustrious academic career at you know, Dartmouth, Stanford Law, and Stanford Business School, and then went on to hold a wide variety of roles, um, you know, ultimately including global head of technology investment banking at UBS prior to jumping into venture. Talk a bit more about the different types of roles you held in your career and how this ultimately led to you finding yourself at Crosslink.
1: Into the investment banking business in the 80s, um, I, I, I was at small firms, right? I was at Robertson-Stevens doing tech investment banking. Uh, ultimately, I ran the tech group there for uh, quite a long time. And in order, you know, firms like Robertson-Stevens, and Stevens, McQuist, Montgomery Securities, uh, Alex Brown, the sort of what were called the four horsemen in those days, were competing head-to-head with Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs to get the best uh, underwriting business, you know, the, Best, highest profile IPOs. And realistically, the only way to compete with those firms was to identify emerging sectors early, identify the best management teams and best companies coming out of those emerging sectors, um, start calling on those companies early when they were very young, often Series A or Series B stage, developing a relationship with the management team, um, and becoming Not just uh, a banker, but a business advisor to those companies. So by the time the IPO came three, four, five years later, um, you were a trusted advisor to that CEO and they wanted you, needed you in that investment banking business versus showing up at a bake-off, you know, learning about a company going public, trying to, you know, have a couple of meetings, show up at a bake-off, and hope you win the business. Uh, which was typically what Morgan and Goldman and Merrill and you name it were doing. So that, that business model really held true from the early 80s when I got into banking all the way through the 90s. It started to change right around the Internet bubble when things were happening fast and furious and you know, companies were going so public so quickly that you know, they didn't have you know, three-, four-, five-year relationship development time processes. And, you know, bankers were being chosen almost exclusively just on, you know, who did great at the bake-off. So that kind of changed. But for those 20 years, it was, you know, my career was all about identifying emerging companies, emerging sectors, identifying the best management teams and the best companies, the best products, and investing two, three, four, five years in a relationship. And many of the companies I took public, I literally had been calling on for five years before the IPO. Um, so I wasn't investing my capital, but I was investing my time. And if you choose the wrong sectors or you choose the wrong companies and the wrong management teams, you're wasting your time, <laughs> right, <laughs> and the bad investment of your time. And so it was an interesting thing The, the when, when I got recruited into Crosslink, um, the managing partner and founder here said, yeah, you never invested your capital. But you were really good at figuring out where to invest your time, which companies to go after, develop greater relationships. The CEOs liked you, respected you, trusted you, valued your advice beyond just pure you know, IPO or private placement or M&A advice. Um, and that's what venture is all about. Um, so I think you'd be good at it. So you know, he'd been working on me for um, a number of years to make the switch, um, and I finally made the switch in 2002. So oh, I think the banking business today is obviously and has been for the last fifteen years dramatically different than it was in the '80s and '90s um, in the emerging uh, company sector. But um, you know, that's that's how it contributed to my venture career.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, you know, that it, it actually the the pieces you described. Um, sound incredibly um, accretive to a, to a career in early stage investing, but actually very different than the investment banking you know, landscape today. So you know, you you take that foundation. You're at Crosslink, and you know, over the last fifteen years, you and your team have invested in a number of fantastic companies and, and interesting ones across industries. You know, Casper, Tivo, Bleacher Report, uh, Coupa in the procurement space ancestry.com was, you know, one of yours and then, you know, of course, a little known music story that you found in in Pandora. So, you know, shed some light on how your investment thesis has evolved, you know, over the past 15 or so years that you've been in venture. What you look for in companies these days when evaluating them and, you know, if there's something particular that you you find yourself or or your firm tend to over-index in, like market, you know, product, team or or technology.
1: Try and answer this in a couple of ways. I think I'm a little bit different than a lot of VCs in the sense that many of them uh, came out of, of a specific practice area. Either they were coming out of a specific company in a specific industry group and then they're in a industry area um, and they're mining that same territory. They were an enterprise software person and they're working on enterprise software or they were a consumer person and they're working on consumer or they were an energy person and they're working on energy. Um, the is, you know, I started primarily, first I started as a generalist tech and emerging healthcare banker, and then I narrowed my banking career to software, but then when I in 88, when I started running the technology group at Robertson, then I had to do everything across all of tech. Um, And so, I was comfortable in a lot of different sectors. Um, And that continued because the next job at UBS, I was running the tech group, then when I was uh, Chief Operating Officer at Wolfie Round Wayland running the firm, it was across all of All of tech and healthcare in their case, Um, and then back at UBS again across all of tech. So when I got into venture, I wasn't pigeonholed by the firm and saying, "Okay, you're going to do enterprise software, you're going to do, or you're going to do consumer, or you're going to do, you know, fintech or whatever it was." Um, Because I kind of navigated in in all the spaces across across tech. Um, The area I had the least personal interest in was hardware. Semiconductors, that sort of thing, and the area where I had the most personal interest was software, internet. But I had, you know, a lot of in my software and internet banking. I'd done a lot of consumer and a lot of enterprise, and I'd done a lot of fintech uh, stuff. So those are the areas where I've been operating. Um, I think that's a little bit different than most people, but our firm uh, accommodated that. And when we'd hire somebody from the outside who came into a spe- from a specific area. I would say, okay, fine, you do that, and I'm going to go over here. So I've kind of gone where we didn't have people, um, which is probably, again, different than you come out of fintech, you're going to do fintech. If we hired somebody who's going to focus on information security, okay, I'll do something else. Um, So that kind of explains why you'll see in my (laughs) background that I did Ancestry.com and I did Pandora, but I also did Koopa. You know, I'm in personal capital, right? And so... um, you know, I did amateur variety of different areas but that answers part of your I think part of your question which is probably you know a little different than most um, the other part was what do we look for I think it's every firm is looking for the same thing it's big markets you know compelling uh, founding team um, opportunity to you know is it competitive differentiation is there product differentiation or a way to you know build a not necessarily a defensible business through IP, but a um, business that can be a durable uh, market leader um, through one factor or another. Um, and I think that's the, kind of the same for everyone. I think every company is a little bit different. Um, sometimes you can have a, an idea where you anticipate a lot of competition early and maybe not as much differentiation, but it's a huge market and you think you've got the most compelling management team that's going to go, you know, kick tail. Um, you know, in other cases, it could be just, you know, the right time and the right place for a product in a huge market that's about to explode and the product is going to carry everything. Um, and, uh, you know, that. The, you're going to be recruiting a management team along the way to take advantage of that. So it's, it's you know you have to look at each circumstance differently, and you're weighing you know risks and opportunities. Uh, there's a lot in venture about um, you know combination. A lot of people ask themselves you know what can go wrong, and they worry about what can go wrong. But you also need to ask yourself what can go right, and that's a you know that's a, a tough
0: thing. Yeah, and the to figure out. the it's not, it's not easy, right? I mean, the failure <laughs> rate is really high for
1: everybody, even the best investors have they have their share
0: of miserable things no that's <laughs> they were wrong on one, on one dimension or another that's exactly they, right dimension. sometimes it was they were wrong on
1: market development sometimes they were wrong on the management team and they couldn't fix the team sometimes they were wrong on um, differentiation of the product whatever it
0: was it's one of the most interesting things actually about venture that and it and it's a, l- a little bit uh, emblematic of how much venture is a slugging percentage game as opposed to a batting average game is that you know when you're right, right, you're really right, right? But the the strike rate is right. actually is is very low. So let's let's actually let's dive into I want to I want to dive into Pandora a little bit, and I think it's actually it, it pulls on some of the characteristics you were just talking about, right? A your interests at the cross of you know software and internet, B some of the pieces you were just talking about about you know competitive differentiation, and I, I think the context of the story kind of paints that out. So you know as background, obviously you know, but you you led Pandora's first institutional round invested in the company way back in 2005. And, you know, at that time, um, you know, the market for Internet radio was was growing rapidly. XM, Sirius had, you know, millions of customers, and they were paying real dollars in the space. But, but they weren't doing Internet
1: radio. They, they were doing satellite radio. They were doing satellite, satellite, radio, satellite radio. They had, they had no streaming, yep. online streaming radio. Yep.
0: So they were doing satellite radio. But, you know, they had millions of customers paying, paying real dollars in the space. And interestingly... You know, your investment thesis actually wasn't based on those dollars. It was, it was based on ad revenue and its potential in the space. Right. So, you know, the investment actually was, you know, contingent on Pandora running a freemium model for users to, to end up supporting, you know, the creation of a robust robust ecosystem attractive to marketers. So talk, talk a bit more about, you know, what the thought process was, you know, at that time when thinking through this strategy. Because obviously playing Monday morning quarterback, you know, it worked out. The business was doing great. But talk about you know what the kind of inflection point or the thinking was at that time, and and you know really some of the key right moves made um, by the business over the last decade, in, in terms of thinking about you know streaming and internet radio, um, to grow to you know 80 plus million monthly users today.
1: Sure. So I think we have to backtrack to you know a process that we use here at Crosslink, and and that is that you a sector we think is interesting and emerging we want to meet literally if we can every single company in the space um and we had decided we had an interest in digital music I had a personal interest in it um we had had hired a, an associate with a digital media background and expertise and i asked him to call on every digital music company he could find regardless of size or stage and also to work with our public team to understand with our public we have a you know hedge fund team that looks at public stocks understand you know what the various public companies were doing um, so you know we wanted to create a big landscape but hopefully in calling on all those companies uh, we could identify you know ones that we thought would be winners and he, I think he called on 40 something private companies various ages and size one happened to be a company that at the time was called savage beast and it was developing its product was in development its only product at the time was a the music genome software application that ran in kiosks in stores like uh target and best buy where you'd go to the kiosk and you'd say well i like steely dan what else might i like and it would recommend music to you based on the genome that was the original business of what became pandora was called savage beast um And they had raised, and that was the the angel round or seed round that was done in 99 and funded that business. Uh, By 2004, they were out of money. They were operating on fumes. And Walden and Labrador came in and recapped the company to recruit a new management team to take the genome and build a different business with it. Um, And that's, we met the company when they were in the middle of that process. Um, And so... You know, we were intrigued by what they were trying to do with the product. Um, that's when Joe Kennedy, Tom Conrad, and Jessica Steele came in to partner up with Tim Westerman. Um, and, you know, they all devised the idea of a consumer internet radio service It was powered with the playlist being powered by the music genome. Um, so, you know, we got to hear their product plans, got to meet and understand the team. It was going back to the sort of banking days kind of thing, call on 40 companies, figure out the best one. Um, And, uh, you know, when the product was ready for an alpha, we participated in the alpha. When it was ready for a beta, we not only participated, but the partners here got their kids to participate and got (laughs) their kids' friends to participate. And I think we ended up with about 40 users and formed a focus group trying to get feedback from these users. this was like, of course you'd pay $3 a month for this. It's peanuts. Um, But the people that were between 18 and 30 are like, are you crazy? We wouldn't pay a dime for this. It's a great product, but there's so many free alternatives in in music, we would never pay for this. Right? Um, And that was the thing that convinced us that the only way to ever get people to pay for radio, put on-demand aside, that's a different product category, but to pay for radio was to build a big enough free user base um, and build a big enough ad business that people would start paying to turn off the ads. Hmm. Right? So yep. when we um, got uh, interested in the business, we told them that we wanted to invest in the business and lead their, you know, this this round that was going to fund the product launch. Um, but we were really only interested if they would go with this free ad-supported approach. Right. And. We bet, you know, my analyst and I, my associate and I built this big, massive spreadsheet model. We were trying to get, we did a lot of research around ad rates for different kinds of media. We made assumptions about ad loads, about ad rates, you know, what we might be able to do with audio ads. Um, We were already thinking audio ads, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And built a big monetization model, shared that with the management team. They were like, we're totally on board with this. The board was skeptical um, because the board had... You know, frankly, a bunch of people who could pay $3 a month just kind of thought of it in that context. Um, anyway, we finally we, we finally got there and can, everyone was convinced. The management team ultimately, I think with our help, convinced the board that this was the right approach. We closed on the round. Two weeks later, they launched the free service. Backing up just one little bit, when they first launched, at the first launch, the initial test was, you could use it for free for 10 hours, and then you had to pay $3 a month, hmm, um, or you got, you got turned off. So six weeks into this test, they had they generated 500,000 trial users, which, by the way, in six weeks to get 500,000 users was phenomenal. I mean, it was faster than MySpace had gotten to 500,000 users and other leading consumer things at the time. Um, but after six weeks, uh, they only had 4,000 subscribers. Right. Yep. So, five hundred thousand trial users, four thousand people paying three dollars a month. I went to them and said, basically, this just proves my case, right? You you could get a hundred million trial users, you'll get eight hundred thousand subscribers paying three dollars a month, and from a hundred million users, you'll build a thirty million dollar business. It'll be profitable because you're only paying royalties on the people who subscribe. But then royalties on the 10 hours a month, 10 hours free, but that's not a big deal. So you'll be profitable, and it'll be a $30 million business. You can sell it for $100 million, and your your, uh, earlier stage VCs that funded the product development will make some nice money. But you won't build a billion-dollar business. Um, The only way to build a billion-dollar business is to get those 100 million users and get as many of them to listen for free as possible and, you know, generate ad revenue. You may generate only a dollar a month, fifty cents or a dollar a month in ad revenue compared to three dollars a month in subscription revenue, but you'll have a hell of a lot more, right? Um, and you know that's obviously the way it the way it played out. The whole emergence of on demand is a completely different <laughs> situation, and we can't even talk about that. But <laughs> in terms of just building a radio business, you know, they ultimately got to eighty million users, and eighty five percent of their revenue has been. Uh, ad supported revenue and even the subscribers they didn't really come back and start focusing on subscription until they got the ad loads high enough they came back with a differentiated subscription product which was initially no advertising uh, a higher bit rate, it was three times the bit rate so if you were going to play through your home theater or home stereo, whatever, you were going to want the higher bit rate Um, and yeah, I think there was a desktop app or something which was not a big deal it's a, it, um, so at least, at least they got some people to convert to subscription. It's um, interesting. But the gross margins, by the way, in those days, the gross margins on the ad revenue were higher than the subscription gross margins. We got the gross margins on the ad revenue up to, call it, 50%. The subscription gross margins were 30%. Well, that's surprising. And that's because the subscribers, well, but the subscribers were the heavier listeners, hmm. right? Yep. Listening more hours, and you're paying royalties based on hours. The royalty was not based on a percentage of the subscription. It was based on hours. Hmm. So the heaviest users who converted... So even though the subscribers were predictable and they were there every month and, you know, it was recurring revenue, it was lower gross margin. Um, and the ad revenue was much higher, much higher gross margin, but obviously less predictable and, you know, um, users coming and going and subject to economic fluctuations and, you know, overall ad spend in the economy and things like that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Pandora was you know, Pandora was an interesting story, I think, for a couple you know, a couple of the different reasons you laid out. You know, from a process perspective, it was interesting to hear how you were think how you know you and the team were thinking about evaluating the space. And then, you know, agreed, we actually we didn't get into the on-demand piece, and I know that could be a whole other conversation, but it you know, in many senses it was a little bit emblematic of, you know, the usage of ad revenue and kind of the future of ad revenue and consumer. Um, obviously, you know businesses like Snap, etc., you know, being fully baked on on that type of business model, um, as well as some early innings on 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 thought process on on demand. I know you guys are in Postmates, but obviously, there's a a whole flurry of activity and news, especially centered around you know unit economics and, in the on demand space. But you know, more more broadly, I think you know switching switching gears slightly, um, I think it's interesting because it it really painted to the future of different types of business models, and I think where we are today you know, truly a hockey stick moment for a lot of technologies and a lot of industries. Um, I'm curious to switch gears and actually hear your thoughts on valuations. Um, and specifically, you know, what you think of venture as, as relative to other asset classes these days, and the state of valuations. You know, anecdotally, it seems LPs are more bullish about putting money in venture. You know, there there have been a couple of recent IPO misses in in Snap and in Blue Apron that could swing sentiment. But in aggregate, I think there's some fundamental underlying mechanics that you know point to why LP contribution may be up. You know, more innovation is happening on the private side compared to public companies. So obviously there's more growth potential. There are material rounds to be part of pre-IPO, especially these days, which is you know much more of a new trend than historical. And then market sizes and cost dynamics are just increasingly you know, favorable for for new startups. And, and as an LP, you're almost getting the equivalent of an ETF on the private side you aren't forced to absorb, you know, the risk of a single investment or stock. So, you know, what's your view on venture as an asset class these days and and then separately, but interrelated, the overall state of valuations in the industry?
1: Uh, I think there's a lot of strategies and a lot of ways to be successful and, uh, you know, LPs, GPs have to figure out what strategy is going to be successful for them and LPs have to figure out which strategies they want to invest in and what's going to be successful for them. I do think, in terms of valuation, anytime uh, there's a massive shift in capital uh, into a sector, into a category, valuations are going to go up. Right? Yeah. Um, we saw in the buyout business where uh, the there was a massive shift of capital into the buyout business. Returns had been great, so there's a massive shift in capital into the buyout business. And what happens? You get the formation of a whole lot of new funds, um, and you know uh, there's more now. Things are competitive auctions, EBITDA multiples, successful winning bids have much higher EBITDA multiples. Companies are having to put more, buyers are having to put more uh, leverage on companies to make the returns happen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it becomes a tougher space. Now, it's a space where a lot of capital can be put to work. So it's because you know the scale of the deals is so much larger, so much capital can be put to work, so it continues to attract capital. But it definitely drove up valuations, multiples, and everything else in the buyout space. Same thing happened in the growth equity space, and it's happening in the venture space. In the venture space, it's mostly been huge dollars chasing hot, what I will call hot, mid- and late-stage deals, pre-IPO deals, where they think, even if the IPO isn't going to happen because these companies want to stay private longer, these companies are reaching, they'll be at IPO scale within a year or two of the investment, and so... There's big money coming from big multi-billion dollar venture funds into those deals that have a hard time putting that capital to work anyplace else. There's big money. There was big money coming from hedge funds. Saw that as an opportunity because companies were staying private and there were less to choose from in the public market, so to speak, right? Um, And the only place to find the next generation of growth companies, they couldn't wait for them to go public. They had to find them in the private market. Same thing with the mutual funds. The only way they could find the next generation of growth companies was in the private market because fewer companies were going public. What did that do? Well, it drove up valuations of, public, of private, mid and late stage private companies to really, really high levels. Um, so I don't think those are sustainable. I look at these numbers and you see private companies that have much higher uh, valuations on a, on a multiple of revenue, free cash flow, EBITDA, whatever multiple you want to pick, than public companies. And you can see it when these companies are coming public and they're filing your IPOs at half the price of the last round. Exactly. Um, right? So it's it it may have gotten to the point where, guess what? You should be looking at the public market. For us, what it did was, we already had a public team, so obviously they're always looking at the public market. For us, what it did was push us earlier in earlier stages. For the first 10 or 12 years I was here, our business was roughly, we were always stage agnostic because, um, because we had this public market effort. Our view was we could analyze companies from early stage all the way through late stage into the public market. Um, and the later stage they got, the more we employed our public team to help in the diligence. But it was roughly 40% of the dollars went into companies where our entry point was late stage. And most of those dollars obviously went into one round if it, our entry point was late stage. 40% of our dollars went into companies where our entry point was early stage, even though the total dollars came in multiple rounds, the entry point was early stage. And 20% of the dollars we invested, the entry point was mid-stage. That was kind of the stage we avoided, because it was harder to assess risk versus reward at that stage. Now, you look at valuation, company development, whatever, mid-stage is tough. That was that held true for, call it, the first 10 years, 10, 12 years I was here, as all this Money started chasing the venture category in in places I just talked about, mutual funds, hedge funds, big growth funds, et cetera, chasing these mid, mid and later stage deals. It just pushed us to emphasize early stage more and more and more. So our last, what I would call traditional late stage company, um, let's call it a company doing, I think it was doing 40 million revenue at the time, but say north of 20 million revenue when we first invest. I think the last one we did was Late 2011, so it's been, you know, almost six years. The last what I would call mid-stage deal, call it 10 million in revenue, when we invested was um, late 2012. It's so almost five years. Hmm. And in our latest fund, which we've been investing about three and a half years um, before we just move on to the next fund relatively shortly, that fund, every deal in the fund except one, our entry point was seed or Series A. There was one where our entry point was Series B. Nothing beyond that. Um, so that just shows how our business has shifted. When we look at seed and Series A valuations, are up. I would say from where they might have been in a more normal market if you will, but it's not a lot. You know, if you look at all these charts about valuation moves with market swings, you know, there's just not a lot of volatility in seed and Series A valuations. C, probably series A, obviously, more than C. Not a lot of volatility in seed valuations. They creep up a little. Yep. You know, they might go from, you know, mid single digits pre money caps on a seed round to high single digit pre money caps. But, um, and then, you know, a, a volatility is a little bit bigger, and you get some A's for quote unquote perceived hot companies that get pretty extreme. But for the most part, they've been in, our A's have kind of been in the same general zone. Um, and it's where you really see the spikes start happening is B and beyond. Yep. No, I
0: can, Um, I can, I can see that. And really cautious, you know, another thing is, you know, go back to strategy. Every
1: firm has to have a different strategy. Our fund sizes don't permit us to put 20, 30, 40, $50 million into a single round. Exactly. Uh, So we, we used to be able to lead late stage deals with a 14 or $15 million, 12 to $15 million investment. In a single round, in a late stage round, it was a twenty to twenty-five million dollar round. Um, now, you can't lead a late stage deal with twelve or thirteen or fourteen million dollars, right? And you can't even lead a mid stage deal with it takes. That's what it takes to lead a mid stage deal.
0: Yeah, and right. no, I mean you see you see the fund sizes becoming larger and larger, and you don't see the venture economics changing, right? To be in the top quartile. You have to return, you know, three x the fund, and so the larger the fund you raise, right? If you raise a billion dollar fund, you need to return three million, and if you say, you know, these days the average rata in a, in a company is twenty percent, which it's it's probably less, right? You're, you're you have to find fifteen million in exit value. So the economics don't change, right? But the um, well, the I would say that there is
1: a the return. return. I think there's a there's a difference in multiple return expectations. When somebody, I mean, I'm not an LP, so I can't speak for LPs, but when somebody invests in a $2 billion fund, I, I don't that, I don't necessarily think they're looking for 3X. If they get 2X and they get a high IRR, they want a really high IRR, but if they get 2X because it's all late stage and it's, their capital is returned faster and therefore you know, they can get a high IRR on a, on a 2X fund, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are good with that. The earlier stage you're focused, the more – you know, on an early stage fund, people aren't going to be satisfied with the 3X. They want more than that. Yep. So I think the multiple expectation does um, vary by, you know, stage.
0: Uh, And I'm curious actually to hear your thoughts on – you know, so – so I think the capital allocation phenomenon in venture is, is the interesting one, right? And kind of what we just talked about, about how, you know, your business itself, you've seen yourselves move, you know, more and more to the early stage. You know, I think if you look at, you know, the macro level issues of what's going on, market sizes are obviously significantly bigger today. There are 50 million people on the internet in 95. There'll be 5 billion on mobile by 2020. And then, you know, on the cost side, at least in the early stage, you know, scaling is definitely more expensive, but cost structures to start a business have obviously exponentially shrunk. And the, the adage in venture has always been, you know, regardless of the amount of capital available, the same number of generational companies are, you know, historically started every, every, every few years. And, you know, 90-plus percent of the exit value comes, you know, at the hands of 2 to 5% of the investment, you know, in, in a given year. And it's interesting how much that dynamic is, you know, has been revered in a, in a space especially like venture when, you know, it's, it's somewhat of a known quantity, obviously, that history can be and often is a poor predictor of future performance, And I think what you see now is is exactly to the point you were making earlier. There are actually a lot of incredibly large funds that are, you know, coming. There, There are a large number of funds, period, that are coming into the space. But there really, even as of late, have been some incredibly large funds that have, you know, just been formed. You know, notably, obviously, the SoftBank Vision Fund that was recently announced of, you know, $100 billion. Now, a lot of their model might be focused on growth equity. But regardless, $100 billion is an incredibly large amount of money to invest in a space when... You know, typically on a on a given year, um, if you look at just all the amount of money that's going into early stage venture or venture, so on a comparative basis, hundred billion dollars is actually a a, a large a large amount comparatively. So I'm I'm curious that you know with the change in market dynamics, both on the market sizes piece, you know the cost effective org structure piece, do you see this kind of historical age old adage that's been going on in, in venture remaining true or is there a tipping point that'll come which really there is a correlative factor of you know increased capital actually will create increased investment opportunities. So it will allow a lot more of these companies to get on the ground and you'll continue moving, the cost curves will continue moving down and the addressable market curve will keep moving up. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, on that kind of phenomenon.
1: Yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, it's all about um, market size and market size potential.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. So to me, the most remarkable thing, is I've watched this since I came out here in 1979, and I've watched this <laughs> Silicon Valley develop, the most remarkable thing is just how much bigger the market sizes are. Yeah. Obviously, on the consumer side, you know, you had, there was very little... We had consumer electronics before the internet came around in 95, right? Um, well, you know, a consumer internet came around in 95, obviously it came a little bit earlier than that, but um, it wasn't until... Browsers came along that it kind of expanded into the consumer market. I guess AOL, we can say AOL was pre browser days. And even that was a relatively small business, though, um, at the time. So, you know, you, the internet obviously opened up this dramatically larger market. And then as uh, broadband penetrated not just the US, but the rest of the world, it just kept expanding, 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 expanding. Um, you know, mobile, massive consumer market, right? So it's just dramatically different than we ever saw before. Even in the days of the 99-2000 internet bubble, um, just look at the number of global internet users and what you could do then. You just There wasn't that much yeah. market opportunity compared to what there is today. That's yes, consumer. On the enterprise space, it's still the same, you know, the, the amount of global enterprise IT spend and the categories they're spending it on, you know, it's just massive. So these markets are huge and getting larger, and the categories keep expanding because as uh, technology enables, uh, as technology develops, you know, the silicon cost curve and then the power of software, um, it keeps opening up new areas of, quote-unquote, automation. Um And those create brand-new markets or contiguous markets. And each of those markets can be really, really large. So it's just what I've seen is the number of categories uh, where technology has an impact just keeps expanding and expanding and expanding. I don't know when that's going to end. And then um, the size of the markets are just dramatically larger. Both of those mean that you should be able to invest more capital. It's not that the capital enables the creation of markets, it's the technology enables the creation of markets um, and the capital can be in, invested productively um, at high return in those newly created markets. Right? Um, so you need the capital and the markets, but it's not like the, the capital created the markets. It was the other way around. It's the other way around. <laughs> capital, around. Funded market. capital funded market, the market development, but it was the technology that enabled, technology developed that enabled the creation of the market, plus some smart entrepreneurs came up with an idea that nobody had ever thought of
0: before. Exactly. So let, let's actually uh, talk about the automation piece that you were just referring to. You know, one of the biggest critiques... Yeah, and I
1: use automation loosely. It's uh-huh. obviously not necessarily automation, but it's the application of... The application. ...some form of technology to a uh, consumer or business market, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. No, and so, and and I think, you know, I, I'm interested in the automation and, and application of automation piece. Oh, let, let me just kind of jump uh-huh. in one second. First. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but... But the other thing you get in technology all the time is you get these platform shifts, right? Exactly. the we enterprise, we had
1: the platform shift from mainframe to mini computers, and the platform shift from mini computers to distributed PCs, and then the platform shift to, to mobile. Uh, internet based. I'm just saying enterprise, internet based, mm. cloud. And every platform shift, you get a new generation of applications. This is enterprise. You get a new generation of Network infrastructure, you get a new generation of network infrastructure, hardware, and software. You get a new generation of uh, enterprise applications. You get a new generation of users being enabled, different kinds of users being enabled by those applications Um, beyond core IT. You get um, a new generation of system management, system software, system management, database management, you know, all the things in terms of Running enterprise systems, you get a new generation of information security, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Every platform shift, you just get a whole new, the old generation doesn't seem to be the innovator in the platform shift. The old generation either dies or they, they acquire.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right?
1: There's a lot of old generations along the way that I've watched in 30 years die and, you know, some of them, the oracles of the world have succeeded by, you know, continuing to acquire, uh, uh, companies along the way. Um, but the same thing happens in consumer. Every platform shift enables a whole new set of applications. Um, and so some of that is um, it's, it's technology evolution that leads to the platform shift, right? Um, and I think that's, that's – and so when you look at the waves of innovation – I do – you had made a comment about um, – I don't remember exactly what you said, but something along the lines of there's a pretty consistent number of companies being founded. I don't actually agree with that. I don't have the data to back this up. So, but my sense is you get two different things that affect the rate of company new company formation. One is financial market volatility, right? When when there's a financial uh, uh, collapse, a valuation collapse, so after 83, 84, there was an 83, 84 boom – bunch of the PC and PC-related companies went, you know, crapped out. Um, shouldn't use that language on this. Um, and, you know, innovation was slow in the 84, 85, 86 timeframe, let's call it. Um, you know, then the stock market, and then there was kind of a rally, and then the stock market crashed, and people were depressed, whatever, and there was less new company formation in the period after that. And then we had the Iraq. You get these cycles where, People are more secure, staying in their corporate, in their job, with their company, getting their cash and their stock options and their bonuses, and not taking the risk of being an entrepreneur. So entrepreneurship goes up and down with the economic cycle. After the Internet bubble burst in 99, 2000 it was death around here for, in terms of new company formation, it was death around here for a number of years before people sort of then broke out and started um, increasing the rate of new company formation. So you get that, but then you get these platform shifts. And in a, in a period where there's, uh, you know, we've been on one platform for a while and, the, and a shift to a new, you know, technology platform hasn't happened, you know, the rate of new company formation slows down and then suddenly there's an explosion around a new platform. So when mobile, you know, mobile was around for a long time, but it was really when we got to the smartphones um, that there was just an, this explosion uh, of innovation around applications driven by smartphones. Um, you know, people said mobile... Well, there's always going to be all these startups around mobile, but it didn't really happen until that shift to smartphones took place. And then, bam! Entrepreneurs saw that; said it was going to be huge, and there was a lot of tons, way more new company formation after that than before.
0: Yeah, it'd be interesting actually uh, to
1: mention, tie that more companies succeeding because the original flip phone platforms weren't really good, good for much. It'd be
0: actually it'd actually be interesting to look at it. I think in the context of of the financial markets because. You know, the I, I think your hunch might be right. It's it's interesting that underlying technology itself, the platform shifts happen relatively routinely and actually not at all related to the financial cycles, right? I mean, every ten to fifteen years, they're, they're unrelated. you, you they're see unrelated. A, yep, you see a fundamental technology shift, and then each of these you know platform shifts go through a gestation period, and then you know more applications are obviously built on the platform, so there's higher utility, and it's kind of a self-reinforcing cycle. And then there's a jump, right? There's a disruptive jump to a new platform. But I, I take your point that it would be interesting actually to track if you, you know, pair that, let's say, 10-year 10, 10 cycle or 15-year cycle, and and you really analyze when the shift comes from, you know, gestation to mainstream or so, is that piece correlated, you know, with the financial markets and financial cycles? Because you know, Uber and Airbnb, right? Two generational companies. Well, we can have a debate on Uber given its state today, but at least. Uh, historically seen as probably generational companies, um, we'll see where they end up. Were started actually at the depths of you know the rungs of the recession, right in that '08 to '10 kind of time frame. So Jim, you know thanks so much for taking the time today. It was a it was a fantastic conversation. It was great to get some more insight into how you and your team thought through Pandora in the early days and and how you think about capital allocation today. You know for everybody that's listening, make sure to tune in next time as we continue to talk with venture capitalists, technologists, and Financiers about the most pressing business issues of our time. Until next time, take care.